Well, I'm excited to get back into this passage. I have a bit of an extended intro that I think will frame up a bit, um, Acts 13 and 14 again. And uh, I want to have some discussion today and next week. We'll see how much time we have to do that. But I, I want to continue to kind of take this fellowship group time and drill down our convictions about biblical missions. And it's interesting when we think about biblical missions and we, we jump into a passage like this, we, we really are just looking at how God defines the fulfillment of the Great Commission, go out and make disciples, and Acts 1.8, go take the gospel, first in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set up in our time this morning a bit of an intro that it's going to be more cultural in the sense that when Luke recorded Acts 13 and 14, what I'm about to describe in my introduction today would not have been in Luke's mind at all. You see, because if you would have lived in the first century, if you would have been part of an early church, you would have been in Ephesus or Philippi or Crete or wherever you may have been, Thessalonica, and you would have read the account in the first and second century and on beyond that, of the book of Acts, you would have read the account of Acts 13 and 14, really nothing about what I'm going to lay out in my intro this morning would have been needed to clarify because you wouldn't have been confused. All you would have had was your Bible. And all if you have, if your Bible, you get your definition of the sent ones, missionaries, from your Bible. You get the definition of what we do when we go out on missions from your Bible. But unfortunately... We've taken a whole bunch of bad terminology and bad application of passages and started to apply those and we've confused the whole concept of biblical missions and missionaries. So my intro is going to set us up to walk into our passage because we're desperately confused in this way. Joel James, if you know, if you've read him, you ought to, if you haven't, on missions. He's excellent. He's in Pretoria, South Africa. He was sent up from the Master's Seminary some 20 years ago. And uh, he's got some of my favorite work on missions. And he, he describes missions very simply. I've said it to you before. Missions is just ecclesiology, that's the doctrine of the church, with a passport. All you're doing in foreign soil is what you do here. You just go cross-culturally. And what I think I'm grieved about, and maybe you are as well, is how many well-meaning, wonderful people that love the Lord Jesus Christ, that love His Word seemingly, have been taught so many bad concepts about missions that they end up spending God's resources and God's time doing something different than God says they ought to do in what we call missions. So let's define some terms together this morning as we jump back into the book of Acts so that we allow God to give us a definition of these things. Do you guys remember what I told you where we even got the term missionary from? Does anybody remember? Back in Acts 13, when Peter was first sent out, I told you where we got the term missionary. You're not going to find missionary in your Bible or missions. That's why I don't like the term missional because we just add baggage to another term. But do you guys remember where we got the term in history of the church, missionary? Does anybody remember? Anybody really listening well? <laughs> What's that? So, the term missionary was first used in 1598. 1598 by the Jesuits. So, actually, you had your first proselytizers that were going out to do missions um, from uh, essentially a Roman Catholic sect of 
poor teaching and false teaching in early church history. And this group of Roman Catholic missionaries were sent out, and that's the first time we see the term missionary show up in the history of the church. And the reason they did that is they were using a, a translation of the Bible that was in Latin, the Latin Vulgate version, and there's a, there's a, a term in Latin for one that is sent, which is the term mito, which is sent one, and that's the term we use in our Greek New Testament for apostle, apostolos, or a sent one. So what the Latin Vulgate did is they take the term apostle, or a sent one, apostolos, the one being sent, and they use the Latin term mito, which means to be sent, and they got the concept of missionary. So that's our first usage of even the term mission or missionaries. As, as much as they were wrong in what they were trying to proselytize, the terminology was right. They were sending someone, you could even say cross-culturally, to go proselytize to see churches planted and established, even though they would have been false churches. So we picked up the term missionary. So let's think about missions and missionary for a second. Let's define these together. If the biblical concept, apostolos, the sent one, or being sent, is where we get the concept of missionary. How would you guys define biblically a missionary? I wrote down a, con a biblical concept of what I think missions is and a biblical concept of missionary. How would you guys define a missionary biblically? And I'll say it this way. If all you had was your Bible. And we think, oh yeah, of course. Well, actually, most people don't define it with just their Bible, do they? That's why we've gotten so confused. So if all you had was your Bible, and I mean a copy of the written revelation of God, and you went to this and said, what is a missionary, a sent one, that starts in Acts and then goes through the, the rest of the New Testament, what is a missionary biblically defined? Go ahead, tell, what do you guys think? A believer, a man, a male, equipped by his local church, affirmed by his local church, sent by his local church. And what would have happened during his training in that local church? What, what would they have been looking for? Character. We see this spread out, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. We wouldn't want to say he has the character to handle the responsibility. Like you send out a missionary, and what if God starts saving people? Now they're shepherding a church, so they need to be qualified. <laughs> okay, what else? Calling. Capacity to teach. Calling. You'd want to know, as I described last week, subjectively they have a burden on their heart to go, and objectively the church is affirming that burden by their gifts being used and their character being what God calls it to be. So a missionary, if all you had was your Bible, a sent one, if you had your Bible, no more, no less, here, here would be a working definition I've been trying to think through. A man who's called by God, gifted and qualified, who's trained in his local church, affirmed by his local church, sent by his local church, seemingly cross-culturally, either to see a church planted or see a church strengthened that had previously been planted. First missionary journey, Paul's going out planting. In our next missionary journey, they're going to go out to strengthen and then see more churches planted. There's no more or no less than that when you get a biblical definition of a sent one. Now, you, that, That's a much narrower concept than what we call missionaries today. Okay, so what is missions then biblically defined? That's a missionary. What's missions? All you have is your Bible, beloved. I know we're in a minority 
If you went out of this room into many places and said, I define missionary as that, that's okay. If someone gives a different definition, you just open up your Bible and say, where do you get your definition from? Mine comes from the text. I want God's definition of a missionary, not man's. Mission is one church sending out people to plant or support another church elsewhere. Or to see churches established. And you could have a variety of churches helping out, rallying around to help send a man. But he's going to do what in missions? To do what? Either preaching Christ to see souls saved, or shepherding and discipling those souls that have already been saved. So he's either going to see a church established or see a church planted by means of what? Ministry of the Word. Ministry of the Word through the influence and power that the Spirit gives. So what do missionaries do? What are we sending someone to do on mission? Preach, teach, shepherd, disciple. That's all we're going to see in the first, second, and third missionary journeys. From now until we get through the end of Acts, we're just going to keep seeing the same thing. A man gets sent out by a church. Church gets planted. Elders get established. Leaders get affirmed. That church replicates more men. They send out more men. What do they do when they go? They preach. They teach. They shepherd. People get saved. They preach. They teach. They shepherd. And they keep sending out and replicating. This is Book of Acts missions. Spirit plants churches through the preaching of the word. And that is what we see as biblical missionaries and biblical missions. So... Anything done in, in an attempt to go somewhere and bring the gospel, we might say, is... So let, let's, let's imagine that a, a person goes and they're, they're going to a foreign country and they're going to see a church planted or a church established, but then they're doing a whole bunch of other things beyond that. Like sometimes we'll talk about medical missionaries. When you put that term on the front of it, they may be doing missions while they're there if they're going for the purpose sent by a local church to preach and teach and shepherd or support a local church or see a church planted. But the medical part that they're doing is not missionary work. It's just wonderful acts of service, acts of kindness, acts of care, and maybe they're using the medical work to build relationships to share the gospel to add people to the church. But if it was just medical work without a church, without preaching, without souls being saved, and without trying to see them added to the church, the medical portion of what they do is not missions. It's a wonderful act of service, a wonderful act of kindness. It's just not missionary work. Or sometimes people will say, you've probably heard this, I'm going to the mission field. We say, great, what are you doing? I'm going to teach English to Chinese people. That's wonderful. What else are you doing? Well, that's kind of my missionary send out. Well, what church are you going to be a part of? Ah, we don't really know. Are you planning on trying to share the gospel with them? Ah, if we get an opportunity. I would just say this. If a person's going and being sent, the only aspect that they're doing that would even resemble biblical missions are those moments when they're preaching the gospel to see souls saved and help them be added to a church. Everything else is just kindness, service, a big-hearted believer who wants to maybe care for the common good of people. It's just not biblical missions. We can't add things to missions and call them missions or call them missional. Or beloved, if everything is missions, nothing's missions. Every Christian, however, is a disciple maker, right? Matthew 28, Titus chapter 2, 2 Timothy 2, 1 Peter 2, 9 to 12. Every Christian is called to preach and teach and to shepherd. Every Christian is called to support local church missionaries being sent. But we're just not all called missionaries. Sometimes you go to some camp or retreat or some conference and they say, all of you are missionaries. No, you're not. <laughs> 
Unless your local church affirms you and you're a called man of God sent out by that local church to see a church planted and established or a church strengthened, you're not a missionary. Now you may go with a missionary to support that work. That would be fine. But it still ought to be supporting local church missions. Everything else that we do beyond that may be wonderful acts of service. They're not missionary work. Kevin DeYoung just recently reviewed a book called When Everything is Missions. I haven't read the full book yet, so give me a chance. I'm going to review it. But I appreciate the argument. These two men are making an argument essentially saying that if we don't define missions biblically and we lose God's definition, then we're going to miss God's mission for the world. DeYoung talks about this from the volume in his review. There's an old slogan, or he's quoting somebody else here. Every member of a church is a missionary. It's not accurate. We are all called to be witnesses and disciple makers. When everything is missions and everyone is a missionary, the task is obscured or forgotten. He goes on to show the value of the book with this quote. The two authors in the book say this, We contend that many churches do not do missions well because they don't think about missions well. We will not make progress in the mission of the church if everything is missions. That's why we must be careful with the words that we use. It's not too late for North American churches to reassert that missionaries are sent ones and cast aside notion that everything is a mission and everybody is a missionary. They finish with this. Should churches support Christian schools? At home and college ministries on secular campuses in the United States? Should we work to have excellent and engaging youth and children's ministries? Should we be concerned for poverty and homelessness and clean water? Yes, yes, yes. Of course Christians with compassion care about those things. That's the heart of God. We care about people. We're Christians. That was my addition to the quote. But DeYoung says this, the two authors' names are Spitters and Ellison. But Spitters and Ellison remind us that, we, that if we think all of this is missions, we will end up neglecting the very task laid out for us in the Great Commission. When everything is missions, missions gets left behind. So beloved, when you go somewhere, you go to a conference, you, you're at a church, you go to school on your campus, whatever it is, and you hear a missions report, or you go to a missions conference, or you hear a missionary update. Anything that's not about churches being strengthened, churches being planted, sent men going out, or other people going to support that sent man that has gone out, everything else wonderful that they might do, from education, to business development, to teaching different languages, to medical care, to helping impoverished people, those may be around the update. It's not missions, though. Missions is sent men called by God, by their local church, sent out to preach Christ crucified, see souls saved, churches established, elders raised up, strengthening the church, and then more men sent out. Anything beyond that is not a biblical definition of missions. You say, man, pastor, that is a narrow definition. I would just challenge you, read the New Testament upside down, backwards, read it 50 times, read the book of Acts, you won't find anything different. That is what the Bible says. And I know it's the minority when we think about it that way, but beloved, this helps you center your prayers, this helps you center your resources, helps you center your time on you want to get behind what God's doing through biblical missions. So did Luke have any of that in his mind? No. <laughs> when Luke recorded Acts 13 and 14, he just assumed 
what biblical missions were. But unfortunately, we've so lost the definition. Every time I teach on it, I want to recalibrate our minds so we have God's definition. So, Acts 13 and 14 are really Paul's first missionary journey. So back to our outline if you're taking notes. I shortened my outline for you. Sorry about last time. <laughs> I shortened my outline, and here it is. Conviction-building occasions from Paul's first missionary journey. I have no idea what it was last week. It was really long and probably unhelpful. So we're going to shorten it. Throughout Acts 13 and 14, we see conviction-building occasions from Paul's first missionary journey. And why did I call them conviction-building occasions? Because Luke included them in your Bible with the details that he did because he wanted the early church to have solidified convictions about what missions were, what Paul was doing, what Barnabas was doing, what Silas will end up be doing, what Peter did, and they can pray for it, get excited about it, get behind it. And in this chapter, you got Antioch sending them out. That's Syrian Antioch. And Antioch receiving them back. We're going to see a second Antioch if we have time today. And there's two Antiochs. Antioch of Syria and Antioch of Pisidian. So, conviction building occasion one. We saw it last time. Paul and Barnabas were sent out by a local church. We covered that in detail last time. We won't review that today. The second one we started looking at, and I want to just tie off a few things at this morning, was conviction building occasion two from Paul's first missionary journey. And it's this. The Word of God polarizes and plants. The Word of God polarizes and plants. And if you haven't been here with us, Paul's been sent out by Antioch, and he's on this journey to see churches planted, established, and eventually he'll loop back around and strengthen all of them. So now he's going out to preach and teach with Barnabas, and John will be here as well, which will be very interesting for us to discover. So notice verse 5 again. This is conviction building occasion too. The Word of God polarizes and plants. The early church needed to see when God's Word is preached, it hardens hearts and softens hearts, and the Word of God plants churches. Verse 5. When they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the Word of God. What did they do on missions? Proclaimed the Word of God. Where did Paul always go? To the synagogues first. Went to the synagogue of the Jews. Soon he's going to turn to the Gentiles, but he's still bringing the Word of God to the Jews. Notice they had with them John as their helper. And then they talk about traveling and preaching through the whole island. Look at verse 6. When they had gone through the whole island, which is some hundred miles, they stopped at a new location. Notice, Paphos. It's the capital. But when they got there, there was a conflict. And really the rest of this story goes like this. Tune in with me just for a second. It's very simple. Here's what Luke's recording. These called men of God sent out by their local church are preaching. Two things are going to happen. An opponent's going to rise up and the word of God's going to harden his heart. And this delegate, this official, that's a, the, essentially the operating governor in the area, he's going to want to hear the truth and God's going to soften his heart. And what we see in this first occasion is the word of God preach hardens and brings hostility from some and softens others and God saves and plants churches. So really, that's what Luke records here for us. Now notice, we've got our opponent who hates the Word of God. They came upon a magician, a Jewish false prophet by the name who was Bar-Jesus. Now notice what his, what his role was. Who was with the proconsul, this, uh, this delegate, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. One note here. I got, I got asked a good question last week, and so the benefit of preaching consecutive expositions is I can fix something that I think needs to be right. What I said last week 
is that they called him, Luke recorded, they called him a man of intelligence, and I thought of it like this. Before a guy is saved, he had the word for intelligence is sober-minded, thoughtful, careful. And sometimes when God saves people, he gets a hold of those common grace virtues and employs them in the church. I think of some of our godly elders who were fairly sober-minded men, then God saved them, and the Spirit got a hold of that, and it was very used. And that's one concept here. But someone said to me last week, well, don't you think, Darren, that he's introducing that he's a man of reasoning and wisdom and thinking to show the level of false teaching from Bar-Jesus and his capacity for the human mind, even the most intellectual, to be deceived? And I thought about it and said, yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> so let's correct that from last week. I think that's probably why Luke includes this detail. So you've got this Sergius Paulus who's a man who has a great capacity to think, but he's being deceived by this false teacher who hates the Word of God. But notice what God's doing. He's drawing this delegate, this official. Notice. He summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. Notice the emphasis in missions again. What Paul and Barnabas were known by was what? Preaching the Word. Now, this isn't to dig on anything else, but he didn't come and say, wow, you've had such an incredible impact on our economy. You've been so helpful in how you've helped the impoverished people. That may be true, and God does give platforms through that. But what they were known as, those men, when they travel through, there's one thing on their lips, preaching the Word of God. And everyone they talk to, it's preaching Christ. Everywhere they go, they're preaching Christ. They spent their time bringing revelation. That's what they were known for. That was the priority of their mission. And so he calls them in. Can you imagine the scene? They're probably called before some type of council. There's, there's, there's probably a whole bunch of people there watching. And now you've got this showdown of the false teacher who's trying to deceive this, this, uh, this authority, this delegate, this proconsul. And you've got Barnabas and Paul who are going to give him the word of God. Luke is raising to the surface when the word of God comes. You've got those that hardens, and those that softens, and those who it softens, God saves and plants churches. So notice what happens here. Verse 8, But Elmas, the magician, that's just a way to translate it, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Seeking to turn him away from the faith. That's language for deception. He was deliberately trying to mislead him away from Christ. He, this, this bar Jesus hated Christ and the Word of God. He loved his influence that he got from his false teaching. So, verse 9, What does Saul, who is also known as Paul, do? Overcome by the Spirit is the verbal idea. I'm in verse 9. Fixed his gaze upon him. I mean, you can appreciate this. Imagine if I looked at Keith right here. <laughs> you're not bar Jesus. You're not a false teacher. But you can appreciate... You're good, brother. Um, <laughs> you can appreciate what Luke's bringing to the surface. There's probably this magician who's doing his tricks and his stuff and trying to deceive. And when the Spirit of God overcomes Paul... The burden of the Spirit of God towards the false teacher is just this steely-eyed, firm, resolved face. You are threatening a soul, and he is coming with every force of conviction that he can come with. The air would have went out of the room if they were in a room, if they were outside. People would have been silent, and they would have thought, this man speaks with authority. And then notice what he says to this false teacher. You're full of deceit and fraud, you son of the devil. You're an enemy of righteousness. Will you not seek to make crook the straight paths of the Lord? A summary. You blind, deceiving spawn of hell. Quiet. 
Verse 11, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, he says to him. So think of this cocky, arrogant, flippant magician who's now about to get himself shut down because he stands against the Word of God. Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. You will be blind and not see sun for a time. And immediately a mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. The idea is this. God through the power of the Spirit, through His Apostle, shut the mouth of this man who was a threat to the true teaching that he was about to hear. Here's what's encouraging about that. Why we may not have the power of Paul, though this would be a nice spiritual gift to have, to be able to just shut the mouth of any false teacher and send him off wandering. That would be a great gift. <laughs> um, we have the Word of God. And when God wants to use His Word and implant it in a heart, if we're faithful to preach it, it will penetrate past even the highest level of deception. The Word of God polarizes in this sense. It hardens some and it softens others. Notice what happens next. This is awesome. By contrast to the false teacher hardening and being sent away, God begins the planting of a church. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed. This is salvific when he saw what had happened. And notice this, being amazed. And it doesn't say he was amazed by the blinding. He doesn't say he was amazed by what Peter said to shut the magician's mouth. Look at what amazed him. This is the mark of true conversion. He was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. That word amazement's awesome. It's, it's being overwhelmed, astonished, uh, brought to a point of struck down. His mouth was silenced. He was literally brought into shock and amazement as he heard the words of Jesus the Nazarene that could save him from his sin, and he was born again. How do we know a church is planted? Second missionary journey. Barnabas and John Mark are going to show back up on this island and minister to the churches that have been planted there. The beginning of a church in biblical missions. Sergius Paulus would have been a part of this church. I love that. I love to think about biblical missions. The word is preached, hearts were polarized, some opposed, some are saved, church is planted, biblical missions. Let's go to our next one. We're going to spend a little more time on this. That was our second conviction building occasion. We're going to talk about this next one a little bit. It's an interesting detail that Luke adds. If that's, our, if that's a conviction building occasion, then we have to ask ourselves, why does Luke include this next detail and the next detail is going to be hard for us to stomach for just, just as you think about it because we're going to have the first missionary sent out abandon his post. And so why would Luke include details about a missionary who went out with them actually running from what God has called them to do? I think to teach us all, to help us have convictions and think about the reality that opposition exposes weak convictions. Opposition exposes weak convictions. Convictions. Notice verse 13. Notice verse 13. Very interesting. Now Paul and his companions, so that's Paul, Barnabas, and this John Mark, put out to sea from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. But notice, an interesting detail is included. But John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Beloved, that word for left there is not a soft word. It's not soft terminology. It means to sharply depart. It means to make a clear and definitive break from a relationship for the moment 
In fact, it's the word Jesus uses in Matthew 7, 21 to 24 to the false converts that face him in the judgment and he says, depart from me. It's the word for a strong breach and a strong break from a relationship. A definitive break. A willful decision that could cause permanent damage to a relationship or at least a temporary separation. Now, have you ever wondered, as you read here and then you look at the Acts 15 account, notice, if you look at Acts 15, Paul describes John Mark's desertion right there, just to make some connections in your Bible for you. John Mark leaves there and we're left with only a detail. Why did John Mark leave? That's very interesting. And then Acts 15, a conflict breaks out between Barnabas and Paul over John Mark's departure. And listen to this. Paul uses language, listen, to describe John Mark that he may be an apostate. At the, he thought he might have been a false convert. Notice Acts 15, verse 36. Second missionary journey starts because they want to strengthen churches. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Hey, let's return and visit the brethren in every church. We proclaim the word. That's where we're at right now. We're proclaiming. And see how they're doing. We want to see churches strengthened that were planted. Barnabas went to take John. There's that same John called Mark along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him. And notice the Paul word Paul uses now. Because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to do the work. You know where the word deserted is used? Luke 8.13 in the second soil. When there was a cost because of the word, some people desert the faith. For Paul, whatever showed up in the convictions of John Mark, put into question for Paul clearly, was this guy the second soil where he sprouted up quickly and then something showed up in his life that made him very concerned. In fact, if you chase that word around on deserted, it's used in 1 Timothy 4.1, Hebrews 3.12, and Luke 8.13 to all describe, if, it gets fully, if it's fully expressed, it's apostasy. So, let's think about this for a second. Let's, let's have a little discussion here. Let's make some textual connections. Luke includes details for a reason, right? I believe when we go to the second missionary journey, Luke's going to include the details of the conflict to show us that God even uses conflict to spread out the mission of the gospel because Barnabas and, and Paul separate and Barnabas and John Mark go do some great missionary work and Silas and Paul go to another place. So, We'll look then on how even God uses good men in conflict to get ministry done. That's amazing. Here, though, he's highlighting the departure. So let's think about that. Here's what some men say. They think that John Mark departed because he loathed the fact that Paul had become the leader of the missionary venture, replacing Barnabas. Eh, not buying it. Others think he objected to the continuation of the missionary journey beyond Cyprus to the Galatian region. I'm not buying it either. Some thought he had lost enthusiasm. Based on the context, let's think about what just happened and where he was going. Their next stop, listen with me, is in the Galatian region, which is going to be a hostile region full of angry, Jewish, committed followers of Judaism who are going to oppose everything about Jesus the Nazarene being the Messiah. That's where they're heading, the next region. And he just watched a showdown 
where a magician publicly had to get rebuked and confronted and they faced hostility before a whole bunch of people. And let's back up. Let's think of the profile of John Mark. You know where John Mark first shows up? Acts 12, when his mother Mary hosts a church meeting to pray for Peter who's in prison after John, I mean after James had just been executed. So think, just jump in the mind here a second of John Mark. He's under a godly mom who had the courage to stand under persecution in Jerusalem when believers were being killed. He was there. That's a detail in Acts 12, 1 to 11. John Mark's mom, Mary. He probably knew Peter. He knew James. He knew the apostles. He had seen courageous convictions. He probably came to Christ under Peter's preaching. He had probably seen Stephen or heard of Stephen and what happened to him. And now he's on the mission with Paul and Barnabas. And notice how he's described initially. Go back to the beginning of 13. You don't want to miss this detail. Notice. The beginning here, it says, verse 2 of Acts 13, While they were ministering the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul to do the work which I had called them. So they're going. They fasted and prayed, verse 3. They're sending them out for this journey. The Holy Spirit sends them out. When they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had with them John as their helper. Same guy who just deserted and abandoned them. Same guy that was Mary's son. Same guy that had known about persecution. Helper there is the word for faithful servant, underroar, one you could trust. So beloved, what in the world do you think happened in the heart of John Mark that would cause him to abandon to the point that it looked like it maybe he was not genuine? What do you guys think? With all those details in mind, what happened in the life of John Mark? What do you guys think? I know what I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So fear of man. Fear of the loss of his life. And yet he had been around that all the time. So what did this event signify? What's that? I don't think he's a hypocrite because he repents. We'll see that in a second. Yeah, Mary. I think it's interesting that they fasted and prayed, and this is who was on their heart to send. Yeah. So God is providentially working here. Yeah. And let's face it, Peter has the fear of man as well. <laughs> well these are great men. Yep. And they all have that tendency, as we all do. Yep. It's true. Here's what I think. I think you're right. We'll get to that in a second. Here's what I think happened. This was the first time, if you think of what surrounds his life, where it was the potential that John Mark's own convictions were really going to cost him. They could have cost his mom. They could have cost Paul and Barnabas. And now they're going into probably going to be their most deadly region where they're going to go. And now there's a price tag for him. Fear of man, lack of courage, thin convictions. What is Luke showing us? Even in men that may need to repent and be used again, opposition shows where you have weak convictions. Opposition shows where you have weak convictions. I think John Mark's convictions were being tested and now they were going to cost him and rather than standing, he left. We'll study this more in depth in Acts 15 
But you can appreciate already why Paul wouldn't want to bring him on the second missionary journey. The goal of the second missionary journey was to strengthen churches. He didn't want to bring a guy that wouldn't have had the courage knowing he was going into regions where persecution was going to come when he already didn't stand. And then you have Barnabas going, we can't afford not to bring him. I think he's repentant. I want to see him be used. What a testimony he could be. And you could appreciate both men saying, no, I have passages I could argue for both of them in Acts 15. The point here, though, is this, beloved. Luke includes this detail, I think, to give us the rise to the occasion, this concept. Your weak convictions show up when there could be opposition when you have to stand. So what does that teach us? Let's go back to our outline. What does that teach us about biblical missions, about biblical ministry? How should this passage affect our convictions? How does this expose wrong thinking? And how does this implicate our life? How does this, what should this teach us, this detail? Come on, give it to me. Speak up. <laughs> you want a church behind? He went back to Jerusalem to the church. I'm sure his mom, Mary, was like, are you kidding me, son? <laughs> we sent you out with those men and you came home? I mean, he probably was fearing his mom on the way home. <laughs> and fear a man on every side. Poor guy. <laughs> By the way, for the record, he ends up being affirmed in 2 Timothy 4, 11, by Paul again. Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. He's useful to me for service. He was useless to me when he had no conviction. And when he has conviction, he's useful. And oh, by the way, with Mr. Peter, Mr. Fear of Man, he seems to be the secretary that takes the details that writes your Gospel of Mark. So, but what are we learning about him here? <laughs> well, I think uh, like the cost of discipleship, where it talks about the, you build the castle, and yeah. then, you know, everybody thinks you're an idiot if you only build it halfway. Yeah. You didn't count the cost starting out. And so that's kind of where John Mark is at. So I think just, uh, I think it's helpful just to consider the different ways that our faith could cost us, especially in, in our society and everything else. So looking at our job, looking at relationships, looking at um, even you know our freedom, and then actually looking at those and going, okay, there may actually come a time where you know that choice comes to me, job or a clean conscience. And if that does come up, am I actually going to be ready to give up my job? Because if I if I haven't thought about it, then I'm going to fold in that moment. I thought about that same thing. So let me ask you something. Don't you see now, I'm le it's a leading question, it's not very fair. <laughs> Don't you see, there's two things I'm going to say. One is, we're going to send some men sometimes, they're going to struggle and become weak, and they can still be restored. Fear of man repented of can be restored. He goes back on another missionary journey and is useful. However, it also introduces us to the idea of a man's convictions ought to be tested. So don't you think it's crucial then, before you even send a man, part of his training in the local churches, does he stand at his job when his conscience could be struck? Does he stand in his relationship? People want to go to the mission field and, you know, turn over the world in some foreign country, but they won't even share the gospel with their neighbor. When convictions could cost you how you stand proves your usefulness. Paul later says he's useful, but here he says in Acts 15, he's going to say he's useless to me. I can't trust that he'll stand. So I think what you brought up there is a good point. Training ground and testing in the church. Well, they thought he was that, so that could happen. 
It also brings up the idea that Paul's thinking on the second missionary journey, I still haven't seen enough testing in him to bring him. Second time around. So it's just good principles to think through. Yeah? Because like with, I guess I always think of Peter, because Peter, right, was denied Christ. Three times. And then it's Christ who goes and affirms him, makes him the leader of the church after falling, and then even, even in God's grace gives him an opportunity to glorify him in death and actually crucifixion later on in life. And in Acts 11, when he's so courageous, he still cowers for a moment with the Galatians. <laughs> it's not always that clean, is it? <laughs> because on one side, you're going to say, we, we need to measure a man's convictions. That's true. And on another side, we say, God can restore a man even in their weakest moments and bring them back to usefulness. And so I think both arise from this. That convictions are necessary to be useful. But even when we fall, God can still redeem and restore that if we repent and we are restored and we solidify and fortify those convictions to be used again. You know? No, I'm just I'm trying to figure out how you work that out practically in terms of you see a guy failing this, that, or the other thing. Are you landing more on the Paul side or are you landing more on the, on the Barnabas side? <laughs> Sometimes I'm both in the moment. I feel like I have an identity crisis. <laughs> um, the only way you know is testing and fruit. When we get to Acts 15, Barnabas must have thought he had seen the fruit of repentance and Paul wasn't convinced. And later, Paul probably said, yeah, Barnabas was right. I hadn't seen enough yet. But in the end, Barnabas showed up. Two good men, neither of them are sinning. You guys can appreciate how complicated ministry can become sometimes. Sharp disagreement between two godly men about the genuineness of repentance... Barnabas seemed to think, yeah, I've seen the fruit. And Paul said, not yet. But then eventually Paul said it was so, must have been so notorious. He said, yep, that's genuine. So I think we can look at the rest of Scripture and say, Galatians 6, 7, other passages on fruit that you identify a man's convictions by in the area where he was struggling, he then stands. And so I think Barnabas bringing John Mark, that second missionary journey, they go back to Cyprus, the same island, and he seems to be useful. So you've got to measure it by fruit. So, helpful? <laughs> Good things to think about? I want to get to this last one really quickly because it ties into my intro today and I want to just keep driving home the point of biblical missions. That was kind of a sub-point implication point, but Luke included it, so we want to consider it. And so let's go to our fourth conviction-building moment. I'm just going to introduce it. I'm going to bring out some high points of it and we're going to deal with it next week. Fourth conviction building moment or occasion in the first missionary journey of Paul is this. Sent ones, missionaries, stand and preach Christ no matter the audience nor the cost. They stand and preach Christ in missions, those that are sent. We learn from Paul and Barnabas here. They stand and preach Christ no matter the audience or no matter the cost. Notice verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch. This is the lesser Antioch we see in the Scriptures and not the one that sent them out. It's going to be a wonderful church and it's in a full, fully different region up there in the Galatian region. And notice, And on the Sabbath day, Paul and Barnabas went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading of the law and the prophets in the synagogue, officials sent to them, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now notice verse 16. Paul stood up, motioning with his hand, Men of Israel, 
and all who fear God, listen, two groups. You got the ethnic Jews and the God-fearers, the proselytes from Gentiles who are partial, partially you know, grafted in, we might say, to Judaism. Notice the two groups, men of Israel and those who fear God and listen. So back up for a second. You're going to have three groups that are going to show up here, and I just want to highlight something about missions, and then we'll talk about it next week. You're going to have the God-fearers, who are Gentiles ethnically, who are partially proselytes to Judaism. On one side of the spectrum, they either got circumcised, they're more committed. Over here, it just could be they were polytheistic, they thought in lots of gods, and they liked the idea of a monotheistic God. Acts calls them God-fearers. That's, the, that's who we're seeing here. Then you've got the Jews that come up in this passage. They're ethnically Jewish and practicing religious Judaism. They're still looking forward to the Messiah. And then Gentiles are going to show up in this passage down the way. Here's what's going to happen. Paul's about to preach an incredible sermon. The Jews are going to end up rejecting him. A bunch of the God-fearers seemingly get saved. The Jews are going to persecute him. He's going to turn to the Gentiles and keep preaching. The goal of all this is Luke is bringing this to the surface. Sent ones that go out, preach Christ. They face opposition. They preach Christ again. And no matter if they're speaking to Jews, God-fearers, or full Gentiles that believe in many gods, their same message is this, Christ and Him crucified, and all must come to Him in faith and repentance. They're going to get beat up. They're going to get pushed around. They're going to get persecuted. And Paul's going to get back up and he's going to do the same thing again. He's going to go and preach. So next time we're going to look at this fourth conviction. Sent ones, stand and preach Christ no matter the audience. And listen, no matter the cost. So our time's gone. You guys have any final thoughts before I pray? I'm not even going to try and get into that section. It's like 40 verses. So I'm not doing it. I was more ready, but we'll get it next time. You guys, uh, have any thoughts on missions? Or yeah, Tim. It's so sweet. You think of the example where John Mark was in a situation where he was tested, his conviction was tested, and he failed. But what better situation for the ministry where you have Barnabas and Paul together that we're able to continue on and help him work through that so that he can then share with others later, like Peter does? Hey, I failed when I was tested. This is why I have to prepare for the test. Yeah, yeah. And I even love that Paul and Barnabas end up agreeing in short order on John Mark. They're both affirming of him. So it wasn't as if, um, as time went on, you know, um, Barnabas took the case of John Mark against Paul and then it showed up to be false. I, I, I can appreciate the New Testament bears out that while they had a sharp disagreement and Paul was thinking the churches needed more courage, on some level Barnabas was thinking he could still do it, but in the end they both saw the fruit of John Mark's repentance and he was genuine, he wasn't an apostate, he was truly a faithful follower and God even employed him back in his service and we get to see that worked out in the scriptures. So it's not like one man saw repentance and the other didn't and they kind of ended up in the air. It was, they both ended up seeing the genuineness. And there's no indication they send them yeah, and the disagreement, just so we're clear in case you missed it, is this. The mission that we'll see in the second missionary journey is go strengthen churches. Both of them are looking at John Mark thinking, to some degree he must have been a discussion point, so there must have been some measure of growth they both saw. We should probably say that. But Paul's saying, 
I'm going to go out and exhort these churches to not cower and have courage and not fear man. And I'm not sure John Mark yet is the man to be standing up as a model. True. Barnabas is saying, yeah, but how in the world are we going to give him the opportunity to really be tested unless we bring him? Or I think I've seen a lot of growth and this is going to be his opportunity. And, and one of them saying, but Satan could use his lack of courage. And the other one saying, but God could use his repentance. And they end up in a sharp disagreement saying, <laughs> And then Paul goes, I love you. I'm going somewhere else. Barnabas goes, I love you. I'm taking him with me and I'm going somewhere else. Two godly men, not sinning. John Mark's the only sinner there. <laughs> uh, yeah. I just think about Barnabas being the encourager. Son of encouragement. To do I know. the other churches going, no, 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 this is the guy we started with. <laughs> Bring the guy up that banded us last time and show everybody he's back. Exactly. And Paul's saying, what if he cowers again? What will that mean? And they're going, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's hard. But I think both men would have probably seen some genuineness. I think for us, we extract from it. Convictions are costly. The way you know you have them is when you stand. If you don't stand, it's not a real conviction. We need Barnabases and we need Pauls. We need them all. Don't ask me what I am. I haven't figured it out yet. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, thanks for this morning and this group. Just the, It amazes me that you would have Luke include those details. They weren't accident. They were inspired by you and they're meant to teach us. And so we're so grateful for that. Lord, even in the midst of that, we don't want to lose the overall thrust of this passage that it is to help us see what sent ones did in biblical missions so we can stay on target, we can support that, which you call us to, and in any way we can, we want to get behind those men who you've called and see their missionary work flourish because we want to see churches planted all over this world and see elders established and more churches planted and the gospel go forth so you get more glory. In your name we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed.